0: called to be faithful. In, In many ways, faithfulness is characterized by doing the same things over and over and over because we know they're the right things. We faithfully approach God through the finished work of Christ rather than on our own merits. We approach approach God as receivers first before we seek to give. We faithfully and repeatedly proclaim God's Word and the Gospel without trying to be innovative with them. We're faithful. We faithfully serve others for God's glory, remembering that God will not overlook Those who serve by his grace. Faithfulness, called to be faithful. But faithfulness, being faithful, also means growing. What I'm going to speak tonight about is being faithful to grow, growing in our skills and gifts. And opportunities and relationships and seasons that the Lord gives us to bring Him greater glory. Growing like like a plant, growing like a flower, growing like a tree in godliness, growing in knowledge, growing in skill, growing in influence, growing in fruitfulness, and at times even growing in numbers. Love Jared's message this morning. I loved all the messages. But Jared told us there's a way to grow in greater skill without being discouraged by your present skill level. And that's a great word. That's a good word. That's a needed word. Amen to that. He also said success can be found in ordinary gifting. Success can be found in small churches that are not growing numerically. Success can be found in weakness. You can start a song in the wrong key and still be faithful in your service. Aren't we glad for that? Amen. But, but, we don't want to have this picture in our minds that being faithful means starting at least one song every Sunday in the wrong key. Oh, I'm really faithful, man, really faithful. <laughs> we don't want to think of faithfulness as meaning that, well, we just can only play five chords on the guitar and we can't play bar chords, so, you know, we just, our capo is our friend. That's what it means to be faithful, just carrying your capo everywhere. We don't want to think that those who are successful and, and really proficient or effective or popular, we don't want to look at them and think, well, <laughs> they're doing it for their own glory. They aren't being faithful. They're just being self-promoting. We don't want to think that. We have no idea. We don't want to see it as a sign of God's favor that our church isn't growing. Yeah, God's really blessing us. We haven't grown in 10 years. Because we're faithful. Faithful. I'd like to focus on something that Jared said. He said, there's a way to grow in greater skill without being discouraged by your present skill level. I want to focus on that growing and greater skill part tonight. Don't want anyone to be discouraged by where you're at. Don't want anyone to leave thinking, well, I'm just, I'm just not as big or as good or as big, you know I don't have many opportunities as someone else. But I do want us, I think God wants us to realize that he intends for us to grow. And in Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable About three servants who were all entrusted with different amounts of money while their master went on a long journey. It's the third parable that Matthew tells right in a row where Jesus is talking about his return and the importance of being ready for his return. And in this third parable, Jesus is saying what getting ready looks like. We're not simply waiting around for Jesus to come back. There's work to do. There are gifts to be invested. There are opportunities to take advantage of and lessons to learn. This is a parable, among other things, about maximizing the opportunities that God gives us and not wasting them, of being faithful to grow what God has entrusted to us. So I'm going to read it. This is Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. This is God's Word to us. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two. To another, one. To each, according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents more, five talents, came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me Five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made you two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and sufficient word. This is a simple parable, which means that we'll probably miss the main points. (laughs) Every time we think, you know, as as we're reading along through the Scripture, we think, "Yeah, yeah, I know what's coming. I know what's coming. People who heard this the first time didn't know what's coming. And we want to listen with fresh ears so that the Holy Spirit can apply these words to our hearts. A simple parable about maximizing the opportunities that God has given us and not wasting them. Being faithful to grow what God has entrusted to us. And we're going to look at it in three parts: the entrusting, the stewarding, and the accounting. First, the entrusting. Verses 14 and 15. There are two things we want to notice about the entrusting. The first is the variety. The variety of what the master entrusts to the servants. The master gave his servants five, two, and one talents. He just didn't give them all two talents. Didn't, didn't give them all five talents. Gave them five, two, and one. Now growing up, when I hear this parable, I think, well, talents, you know, we got talents. I got talents. You got talents. That's what he, he gave them talents, you know. Like one could play the piano and one could play, you know, play football and one was good in politics. And, you know, that's not what that means. We get our word talent though from this parable. That's where our word talent comes from. He's not talking about gifts and abilities directly. A talent referred to a weight of precious metal, usually silver, but sometimes gold and copper. He didn't tell the master didn't tell the servants what they were supposed to do with these different these varying talents. He just entrusted them to his servants. It was They were on loan, so to speak. But he didn't view the servants as identical. They weren't triplets. They were unique. He gave each of them a different number of talents to each according to his ability. They had different abilities, and those abilities defined the opportunities they had. So that means the servant who got two talents wasn't supposed or expected to produce five. The servant who got one talent wasn't expected to produce two. God makes people differently. You might have noticed that. And being faithful to grow doesn't mean we all start at the same place nor that we're supposed to end up with the same results. So, some people are given a worldwide platform for their gifts, and they have worldwide opportunities for their songs, for their leading, for their writings. Now, that doesn't apply to most of us, though. All congregational worship leaders can't be Chris Tomlin. We can't all write songs that are in the top five of the CCLI charts because there are only five spots. Chris occupies three of them, but that's besides the point. <laughs> we can't all be Matt Redmond. We, we can't all be the, the songwriter or the worship leader or the musician maybe in our church who is so good that everybody says, oh yeah, whenever they sing, whenever they play, that's just amazing. We can't all be that person. God gives us different gifts and opportunities. Harold Best Best says this about the way we think about music. Ministry and fame have become so equated with each other that it is nearly impossible to think of anything but fame if one contemplates a ministry in music. That's a bad state of affairs. God gives varied gifts and opportunities. Each one for his glory. So, so, entrust gifts that are varied. And then I'm going to talk about the richness of the entrusting. We see variety and we see richness. A talent, if it was silver, was worth about 20 years' wages. So, what, what a laborer might hope to earn in half his life. So, the master gave the first servant 100 years' wages gave the second servant 40 years' wages, and the last servant 20 years' wages. So think about what you make in a year and multiply it by 20. That was the smallest in trusting. Multiply it by 100, and that's what the servant who got five talents got. Now, the majority of us, when we think about what God has given us, the opportunities he's given us, the gifts he's given us, we're tempted to think that they just aren't very much. Kind of small in the big scheme of things. I mean, that's, that's part of the theme of the conference, you know, to, to, to speak to those of us who are in small settings, small churches. You know, we think, well, I know I'm a part of God's plans, but not a, not a very big part. You know, maybe kind of. Hardly noticeable, like you know, just like you know, on on the timeline of history, just that's it. That's what I am, and you know, I, I have a church with three musicians in it. You know, one of them's me. Got a guy who plays the accordion and a drummer who has you know problems with time. But no, I mean, it's good. I'm good. I, I I'm good to go. Or you know, maybe maybe your church like has is ten years old, you know, church plant, and and you're you just you just broke the the 120 mark, because you keep tracking tens. 120 mark. You just broke it last Sunday. And right down the street there's a church, or maybe in your town there's a there's a church that was planted two years ago, you know, started with a husband and wife, you know, just starting a Bible study, now it's thirty five hundred. <laughs> and you're thinking, you know, something's wrong with this picture. I mean, I mean, wh- wh- why is that? Or, you know, you've been asked to lead music in your church and you're just a self-taught guitar player playing a couple years, can't read music, and you're thinking, well, I, you know, I'll just, I'll do the best I can. We can be tempted to think that, that others have greater opportunities or that others are more gifted than we are. And it, or maybe, maybe we're thinking we just deserve better We deserve more. We should be getting some of the opportunities that other people are getting. You know, if only I had more money. If only I had been born into a different family. Uh, Maybe if I had better teachers. If I was part of a bigger church, then I could really shine. Here's the reality. It's one of the things that, 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 that God is speaking to us through this parable. God has entrusted every one of us With gifts and opportunities of inestimable value, beginning with the gift of salvation and all that encompasses. We are forgiven of all our sins. We are reconciled to God. We are children of God Most High. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We hear God's voice through His Word. We have the gospel, we have access to the throne of grace. That's just the beginning. What more could we ask for? Well, on top of all these things, God gives us gifts, skills, abilities, opportunities. And what makes them so valuable is that they belong to God. They're they're on loan from God. We have been entrusted with them. Just like the master entrusted his property to his servants. What we have is for the master's glory and benefit, not ours. We receive gifts and opportunities to serve God's purposes, not ours. They are for his sake, which means they're all valuable, and we've simply been entrusted with them. You know, if someone who's very important gives you one of their possessions and says, hey, watch over this for me. You know, say, say, they, say they give you, uh, you know, a book. Yeah, would you watch over this book for me? Oh, yeah, sure. We treat it with respect because of who it belongs to. Well, the gifts and opportunities and skills we have, they belong to God. So the question, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, do we see what God has given us as valuable and worth investing, worth working with, worth growing? Yes, we receive different levels of gifts and abilities and opportunities and responsibilities, but all of them are valuable and all of them are gifts of extraordinary grace because God delights in using ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary plans and purposes. He loves that. He loves to use the weak things of this world to confound the strong, the foolish things to confound the wise. As one commentator said, If the Lord has shown us no ordinary generosity, he expects no ordinary service. The question is, do you believe the Lord has shown you no ordinary generosity? Or do we live in this mindset that, well, if only, if only. We tend to think, if I can't be as excellent as so-and-so, that I really can't be expected to do much. You know, I'm, I'm just not as good as that vocalist. I'm not as good as that songwriter. So, you know, you just got to take what you got. Again, Harold Best, in his book, Music Through the Eyes of Faith, helps us think about excellence in a biblical way. He says this, excellence is relative Because it is set in the context of growth, of growing up into, of striving, wrestling, hungering, thirsting, pressing on from point to point and achievement to achievement. Excellence is not steady state. It is sojourn and progress, reformation and change. We are unequally gifted. No two people are alike. Hence, no two people can equally achieve. But the real point, the scriptural point, is that whatever we are, whoever we are, we can all be better than we once were. Name the activity, name the gift, name the call, and the commandment to excel in excelling stares at all of us, all of the world, square in the face. The question of God to every Christian is simply this, having achieved thus and so, what is your next move? That was the same question to each of the servants. Having achieved five talents that I've entrusted to you, what's your next move? Having achieved two talents that I've entrusted to you, what's your next move? Having achieved, having received one talent that I've entrusted to you, what's your next move? Well, that leads to the next section we're going to look at called the stewarding. The entrusting and the stewarding, verses 16 16 through 18 says the first servant, the five-talent servant, went at once and traded with them. Went at once and traded with them. He immediately set about developing what he had been given. Now, Scripture's not clear on what exactly he did with the talents. Some some, uh, translations say he worked with them. Some say he invested them. The ESV, English Standard Version, says he traded with them. But this is what we know what he was entrusted with grew. He knew he had a responsibility to steward it, and he got right to it. And the second servant, the one who got the two talents, didn't look at the one with five talents and go, oh man, what a two? Is that it? What what, what is the deal? He did the exact same thing. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. Both servants took what the master entrusted to them and stewarded it so that it grew. But then the third servant, for whatever reason, we don't know yet, went and buried the one talent he had been given in the ground. Now, I've always thought that was kind of weird. <laughs> You're given 20 years' wages, and you go bury it in the ground. I'm thinking, really? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like you, you hear about... Um, people stuffing money in a mattress. You know, we're just going to keep it safe there. You know, and in, in Jesus' day, burying or hiding valuables to keep them safe was a common practice. So we read about the man who, who found the treasure hidden in the field. Someone put it there. Today, it'd be stuffing money in a mattress. You know, and you think, well, at least it's safe there. At least it's secure. Nothing's going to happen to it. It's not going to grow, but at least it's safe. Maybe not. In June of 2009... A Tel Aviv woman in her 40s bought her elderly mother a new mattress as a surprise present and took the old one to the curb on Monday. The next morning, her mother woke up screaming when she realized the bedding switch and told her daughter that she had been stashing her life savings inside the old mattress. The money amounted to about one million U.S. dollars. and asked why she did this, the woman said she had had traumatic experiences with banks. I can assure you that the trauma she experienced with banks didn't compare to the trauma she experienced when she learned that her daughter had put her mattress out on the curb. She lost everything. And that's exactly what happens in the parable. When we take stewarding what God has given us, when we don't take it, Seriously, now it's not clear from the parable how the servants were supposed to make the talents grow. So there's lots of applications we can make. But one thing's clear: the master held them responsible for developing what they had been entrusted with. So what I want to do is talk about some of the things that we've been trusted with that God wants us to grow. I'm going to talk about three. The first is our relationship with God. Our relationship with God there's nothing more valuable there's nothing more worthy of investing in and I think of if, if we're thinking about how the, the first servant traded the talents traded with the talents trading in your relationship with God would be investing time investing time Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's stewarding. His relationship with God by investing time He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season it grows and its leaf does not wither in all that he does he prospers yeah you know, I've looked for him but there are no shortcuts to spiritual depth and maturity if we're gonna grow in our relationship with God it will take time work and intentionality And whatever we sow will grow. Whatever we sow will grow. If we sow to things like Facebook and the Internet and shopping and concerts and fashion magazines and sports, we will find our spiritual life drying up. If we sow to our relationship with God, we will grow. We will prosper. We will know God better. Now, there's definitely something mysterious about the way we grow in a relationship with God. Sometimes it seems that people can do all the right things, read their Bible, pray, fellowship, and not grow at all. Ever had that experience? I'm doing all the right things. I just don't seem to be growing. Or they can sin miserably. You know, and and sometimes we look at that and go, well, yeah, see, it doesn't do anything. It's, It's not worth it. I mean, look, that person read the Bible every single day. That doesn't seem to produce anything. Now, I, I knew a guy many years ago who had, <laughs> he had com- committed a serious sin. And he told me that uh, on that day, he had just finished reading through the Bible for the seventh time. And it's like, wow, really? So investing, but, but no fruit? Well, rather than, rather than develop our, our practice and our theology from experiences, let's, let's go to God's word. Listen to Paul's counsel to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Devote yourself. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. That's Paul's counsel to Timothy. that's God's counsel to us. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. People are supposed to see our progress in our relationship with God. Doesn't mean that there aren't dry seasons, there aren't winter times of our relationship with God, when it doesn't seem like anything's happening, we just keep doing the right things, doesn't seem like anything's happening, then spring comes, and the growth comes. and go, "Oh, that's what God was working, even though I couldn't see it. So, how do we grow? We practice these things, we immerse ourselves in them, then people will see our progress. I was at a conference recently where, where a guy recited from memory one chapter, one whole chapter of Hebrews. In the Worship God conference a number of years ago, a guy recited two chapters of Hebrews from memory. How do these guys do that? Like, do they just wake up one morning saying, you know what? I'm just going to read through Hebrews and memorize it? No. They spend like months months investing time. And I'm just thinking, oh, wow, I could never do that. So I don't even start. <laughs> this is, that's like so hard. I'm just not even going to start. Let me say this. The person who immerses themselves in Bible study and prayer is more likely to grow than the person who doesn't. Wouldn't you say that's true? I've never met someone who grew more in their relationship with God because they didn't read their Bible and didn't pray. Yeah, I found the secret. Like, I stopped reading my Bible. My relationship with God is so deep now. I've never met someone who knew more about God because they refused to read books on doctrine and theology. Now, I've met people who have grown more confident in their self-assertions and in their own opinions. But if we want to grow, we've got to invest time. In our relationship with God, we've got to invest time. And one of the things we can do after reading Scripture, praying, praying, being with the saints is reading books Spurgeon said this about reading Charles Spurgeon give yourself unto reading the man who never reads will never be read he who never quotes will never be quoted he will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own (laughs) you just can't improve on Spurgeon sometimes so so we don't want to sit around complaining about how we're just not growing in the Lord. God's given us means. He's given us opportunities. We invest in them. So that's one area we can steward. Another area, our musical skills. What does trading look like with the, the talents of musical skills? It looks like deliberate practice. What... what, what uh, one man calls deliberate practice, whatever field it is, finances, arts, sports, writing, no one, studies have been done on this. No one generally becomes an expert in something until they've done it for 10,000 hours. That is four hours a day for seven years. So if you look at any great anything, you, you've researched their life, most likely they've done it for more than 10,000 hours. Practice, again, takes intentionality, it takes work, it takes time. God says in Proverbs 13, verse 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. Oh, I want to be better. I want to be a better guitarist. I want to be a better vocalist. I want to be a better keyboardist. I want to be a better drummer. And that's where it ends. I just want to be. I want to be better. While the soul of the diligent is richly supplied... The one who works hard is richly supplied. Now, all of us want the fruit of growth without the work. Have you ever noticed that? I'd, you know, We want to play guitar like Phil Kagey. We want to write songs like Stuart Town and Keith Getty without really spending any time doing either. We just want to get up and do it. Recently, last year, told of a country songwriter who, who had a current hit, and um, I learned that they have about one country hit a year. And I said, you're kidding. That's, that's like, how does that happen? Like then you know, they just wake up and, you know, yeah, I, I'm getting this thought. Yeah, you record it and, you know, it, it sails, to the t- you know, sa- sails to the top of the charts. This writer for years has been writing and recording two songs every week writing and recording two songs every week. So out of 100, he gets one to be number one. Okay, that's good, 1%, that's good. That's really good. You know, so, so if we're thinking, well, I really want you know people to sing my songs. How many songs have you written? Well, seven. It may take a little while. <laughs> you know, Keith Getty's a, a, a dear friend, Keith and Kristen, both dear friends, and uh, Early on, in, in, after, not too long after I met him, he was talking about just practices he had. Now, <laughs> Keith, Keith with Stuart Townend wrote In Christ Alone, which I just think is one of the you know, best songs for congregational worship written in the last 50 years, really. It was the first song they wrote together, which is a real bummer because it's only going down from there. <laughs> But Keith told me that he was in a season where he, he was writing five melodies a day. <laughs> he kept carrying a little notebook around and, and just was writing five, five melodies. I, okay. I'm not doing that, which is why I'm not writing songs like In Christ Alone. <laughs> it takes work. It takes deliberate practice. That phrase comes from a book called Talent is Overrated by Jeff Colvin. He persuasively argues that what most of us attribute to talent and gifting and hereditary genes is often the result of plain old boring repetitive practice. I'm sorry if this is like disappointing you. Here's what he says: Deliberate practice is characterized by several elements, each worth examining. He does this in his book. It is activity designed specifically to improve performance. In other words, there's a goal to actually get better, often with a teacher's help. It can be repeated a lot, done over and over. Feedback on results is continuously available. In other there's a check-in to see whether they're really growing, getting better. It's highly demanding mentally whether the activity is purely intellectual, such as chess, or business-related activities, or heavily physical, such as sports, and, I love this, it isn't much fun. I wonder if this piano is on. Is this piano on, or could we get it on? Excellent. Okay, so I went to school for a piano degree. And my goal, I wasn't a Christian when I went to school, Was became a Christian as a freshman, when I got out of school, I wanted to be able to play whatever I wanted. It wasn't a very godly goal, but I wasn't a Christian. Uh, so at the end of the, my four years in school, I achieved that. I, I was able to just play anything I wanted. If you passed my practice room uh, at you know, any time of day, there's a good chance I would be doing something like this. <laughs> Tell me if you get too excited. (laughs) Almost over. (laughs) So I do that through the, you know, 12 notes of the scale, you know, half steps. And you think, that is boring and it sounds bad <laughs> but what I was working at was finger independence now there's another way of doing it that's a little easier where you do it kind of mirrored so I'm starting to hop, you know low and high and just I'm, I'm mirroring that mirroring the hands that's a little easier But I didn't want to do things that were easy when I practiced because that meant I would only be able to do things that were easy when I played. And I wanted to play hard things. So I did them parallel, which made it harder, which meant when I actually played songs, I could play harder songs than easier songs. That's deliberate practice. I know it's. I know it's pretty exciting. Sometimes I would, I would, you know, practice 10 hours a day. And, and you're saying, okay, yeah, great. I'm a mom with five kids. Yeah, sure. I'll just excuse me, kids. I'm going to practice for four hours. <laughs> just go, go do something. I mean, we, iPad or TV or I mean, we have so many things you can do. Just, just go do something. We're all given different opportunities and gifts and abilities. We're not comparing exact numbers. What we're comparing is an attitude. And if we're going to invest our musical skill, it's going to take deliberate practice of some kind. Now, here's here's some simpler principles. Practice, deliberate practice, focuses on what's wrong, not on what's right. So, whether it's your team or whether it's you as an individual, um, you, you want to. Narrow down the things that that are are difficult or that you're playing badly and just 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 keep No, going at it. So if you're a guitarist and you don't play bar chords very well Don't spend you know half an hour playing D and G and E and A and then two minutes trying a bar chord (sighs) Okay and, and then think you've really, you know, grown in your musical skills. No, you've got to spend, you know, two minutes. It's got to be reversed. Two minutes on the chords you know, and they're easy. And then the 28 minutes on the bar chords. Practice on what's wrong. Focus on what's wrong, not on what's right. Einstein defined insanity as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. We do the same things. We we, we we can't do something, and we never change it. We never try to, to do it well, to do it with skill, to do it right. And then another principle: don't practice until you get it right. Practice until you can't get it wrong. You know, sometimes, either individually or as, or as teams, we you know we we're having struggle struggling with a, a certain section, and you know we keep struggling. And then finally, we get it right. Okay, let's move on. No, you did. that was luck. I mean, I don't believe in luck, but that was probably <laughs> luck. If You know, <laughs> you get it right once. Um, no, you, you, you've, you've got to, like, get it right ten times before you know you've really got it, or at least two or three. Uh, so don't practice to get it right, practice to get, get, can't get it wrong. If you want to be a good musician, practice what you're good at. If you want to be a great musician, practice what you're bad at. Those are just all principles for investing in our musical skills. Now, there's a difference between practicing in real life. Although it does concern me that doctors call themselves like medical practitioners, like they have a practice. Is there another word they can use? Like, I don't know, like I'm actually doing it. (laughs) It just makes me a little uncomfortable. Practice is not for real life, but it prepares us for real life. And fruitful practice means I'm going to be harder on myself when no one's around than I'm with others. Jared shared an illustration this morning about his wife, Megan, and how she was a, you know all-collegiate cross-country runner. And that just doesn't come out of the blue. That is hours and hours and hours of private practice that no one sees. And again, in his book, um, Talent is Overrated, Jeff Colvin shares the story about Jerry Rice, one of the greatest receivers in NFL history, who was renowned for what he did when no one was watching. And I thought of this as Jared was uh, speaking this morning. This is what it says about Jerry Rice. The most remarkable thing were his six days a week off-season workouts. Off-season, six days a week, which he conducted entirely on his own. Mornings were devoted to cardiovascular work, running a hilly five-mile trail, he would reportedly run 10 40-meter wind sprints up the steepest part. <laughs> in the afternoons, he did equally strenuous weight training. These workouts became legendaries, the most demanding in the league, and other players would sometimes join Rice just to see what it was like, kind of like Jared joined Megan. And the result was the same. Some of them got sick before the day was over. It's just kind of a, kind of a theme here that if you're, not, if you're not putting in the time, if you're not investing, you won't be able to do it when the time comes. It's, it's doing hard things when no one's watching. And finally, practice that can't be measured becomes mindless. One man compared it to trying to bowl with, with a curtain hanging down to knee level over the, over the alley. You, know, you, you can practice technique all you want, but you'll, you'll never know what, what's actually happening on the other side. You have to be able to measure what's taking place. So, so we can ask for feedback from people we trust. You know, Am I becoming better? Am I getting better at this? Not so we'll hear a compliment, but so that they'll actually tell us. How can I improve? How have you seen me improve? Ask yourself questions about what you're, what you're learning. Those are all, I mean, I know that's very practical in, in, a, in a message like this, but I think in this context, it's the only place I could share it. And we need to hear that, that God has given us musical gifts, musical opportunities that He wants us to invest in. And then the third category, our sphere of influence, another area of stewardship, another talent that God gives us. And in this this area, trading would look like taking initiative. Just because you've been serving in the same place for the last five years doesn't mean you're supposed to be serving that way for the next five. It might mean serving that way for the next five. And we applaud and commend people who have been serving in the same way, same place, 20, 25, 30 years. But it might not be that's what the Lord desires. So we need to take initiative in the opportunities we have. When you come to a conference like this, do you you sit by yourself and wait for others to come to you? Or are you looking for people that you can get to know, that you can reach out to? that you can befriend, that you can find out about. It's amazing, in this, in this context, with this many people, how many stories God, God might want to bring together, how many lives God could bring together for, for his glory, if we just take the initiative in that. On Sundays, do you come in, take a seat, just sit around, wait for the meeting to begin? Or are you looking around for ways, opportunities to serve others? Do we seek to connect with people we can learn from or wait to be asked? A dear friend passed away last year, Chip Stam. He was a professor at Southern. He's now rejoicing before the Lord. Uh, in fact, the bass player this morning from Sojourn Marty uh, was is his yes, was his son? Is his son. Chip wasn't a man of amazing musical gifting, didn't have an amazing voice. But this is what he did. He took great advantage of his relationships and the opportunities that those provided. So, so there are a number of people who know each other and ha- have friendships now because of Chip Stan. Chip would have me down to Southern Campus every year just to, just to do a day of classes. And then he would have Keith Getty in to do the same. he have Kevin Twitt in. who's going to be sharing with us tomorrow. And in all, he had a Mike Cosper and Harold Best, All because he wanted to see relationships formed for the glory of God, for the advancing of the gospel. And he ended up influencing a wide number of people because he was so interested in encouraging and connecting others. He took advantage of the opportunities he had. He didn't have to. He could have been very content to have been a professor at Southern. He had a fine job. It was going great. But he said, you know what? This is an opportunity. I have an opportunity here, I want to make use of it. And I thank God he did. because I have some dear friendships because of Chips investing in the opportunities that God gave him. Now just look over your past year. Are there any gifts that you've simply buried? Any opportunities that you're burying? No one knows about them, they aren't doing any harm but neither are they being used for the Father's glory. Faithfulness to Jesus leads us to understanding the responsibility of stewarding what God has given us. Finally, the accounting. We have the entrusting, the stewarding, and the accounting. Jesus doesn't say when the master came back what, what, when he, what he, when, how long he was gone other than to say it was after a long time. In other words there is ample time for each servant to work with what he had been entrusted with and lord willing most of us will have many years in which we can be faithful to grow so the so the master comes back and the first servant tells the master you gave me 5 talents here are 5 more and the master says well done well done good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He praises the servant. He says, well done. Can you imagine that moment when we look into the eyes of our Creator, our Redeemer, the almighty, omnipotent, omniscient, eternal God we look into our eyes our eyes meet and he says well done what that's going to feel like Hmm. then he says you have been faithful over a little I will set you over much if we use and invest our talents; we will be given greater opportunities, either in this life or the next. We're often given more opportunities in this life. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine says, "Do you man? Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men." Now, that's not an absolute promise, but it is a principle. Someone who's skilled tends to serve before a larger group of people. Or a more significant group of people. We have to, but it might not be in this life. It might be in the next life. What we have to do is fight the mindset of our flesh and our culture that says the goal, the goal is to get everyone to serve us. That our ultimate aim in life and in eternity is sitting on an island beach, sipping something, doing nothing, just enjoying. <sighs> Finally. Finally, it's all done. Jesus says, You know what? You're going to be given more responsibility in the new heavens and the new earth. You've done good here, I'm going to give you more. Now, that should be a good thing. We should look at that, think about that, and go, Wow, really? Really? You could give me more responsibility? Jesus commends industriousness, good stewardship of the resources he's given us. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be work to do for God's glory. And oh, what a great time we'll have doing it. Oh. So the second servant comes along, and rather than saying, he says, Hey, I have two, you gave me two talents, here are two more. And you almost expect, you know, if you hadn't heard this story, you'd almost expect this, the master to say, What? Only two? Have a guy right there. Just give me five. Only two? No, because the master gave them according to their ability, and he receives the exact same commendation. Now, although what the first two servants gained was significant in our eyes, I mean, five talents, twenty years' wages. Now it's forty years' wages. Yeah. It's a lot of money. It says the master said, "You've been faithful in a little." You've been faithful in psalms, small things. I'm going to give you some big things. So apparently, the master's resources are pretty vast. Pretty unsearchable. Pretty immeasurable. That's because the reward God has prepared for us is inconceivably great to what he gives us in this life. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man, imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7, In the coming ages, he is going to show us the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Immeasurable, unsearchable. He says, you've been faithful with a little, I'm going to set you over a lot. Enter into the joy of your master. The greatest joy in our stewarding what God has given us is not the fruit that comes from that growth, but being able to share in the joy of our Master Jesus, knowing him, seeing him, enjoying him. It's like what Jesus said to the disciples when they came back from casting out demons and they're doing great things. He said, Don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Because you'll get to see me one day there. And that'll make everything else pale. In comparison. Now, the largest part of the parable at the end is devoted to the master's words to the third servant. Jesus wants us to get this. When the third servant saw his master, he responds in verse 24 Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, here, you have what is yours. the master responds you are wicked and you are lazy you're wicked and you're slothful why does he speak to him so harshly why doesn't he say something like oh oh i'm so sorry i'm so i'm so sorry you're afraid of how i was going to react i I don't mean to come across that way Uh, okay uh, well thanks thanks for giving it back to me why why does he respond with such intensity because his actions impugned the motives of the master. They reflected badly on the master. So "I knew you to be hard. I knew you to reap or you didn't sow." So I was afraid, so I wouldn't hit it. I buried it. That doesn't even make sense. If he's so afraid of how the master's going to respond, he should have gone and invested it, so it made some money. So the master calls it right. He says, you know what? You're just wicked. You're just evil. You're lazy. Because what you're saying isn't true. And and what you're saying is trying to put the blame on my heart. Let me turn the focus around and aim at your heart. The third servant was faithful not to lose what he had been given. But he had no sense that he had been entrusted with something of great value. And he had the responsibility before God of stewarding it, and God held him accountable for it. So so what excuses do we have for not investing, not growing in our abilities, and our opportunities, and our fruitfulness? Well, God's so hard. Well, I won't get glory for him. Well, it's, it's just so hard. No one's gonna know. We never know what God will do as we seek to be faithful to grow in the the opportunities and the gifts that God has given us in our lives. I'm encouraged by the example of a man named Thomas Chisholm, who sometimes described himself as just an old shoe, not a very flattering (laughs) self-description. He was born in a Kentucky log cabin in 1866. He was converted when he was 27, became a pastor at 36, but he had to retire one year later due to poor health. He spent the majority of the rest of his life as a life insurance agent in New Jersey. He died in 1960 at the age of 93. During his life, He wrote over 1,200 poems, most of which, probably 1,199 of which, no one will ever hear. But back in 1923, at the prime age of 57, Thomas Chisholm sent a few of his poems to a man named William Runyon at the Hope Publishing Company, one of them was based on Lamentations 3, and 23. Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Runyon was particularly moved by the lyrics and sought to set it to a melody that would reflect the response of wonder and gratefulness to God's faithfulness conveyed in the lyrics. You might know the song. Great is thy faithfulness song quickly became a favorite at Moody Bible Institute and later George Beverly Shea sang it at the Billy Graham Crusades. Now it's known all over the world and has been used to encourage hundreds of thousands of believers. Probably millions. It's Pretty impressive spiritual fruit from a man who had bad health for most of his life and was a life insurance agent. When he was 75, he said this in a letter to a friend. My income has not been large at any time due to impaired health in the earlier years, which has followed me on until now. Although I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God, and that he has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care, for which I am filled with astonished gratefulness. Do we carry a sense of astonished gratefulness for God's wonderful displays of providing care and those gifts with which we have been given the responsibility of stewarding? Let's not lose sight of the rich resources God has given us for his glory. However the talents are interpreted, and I've taken some liberties here, call them opportunities for ministry, gifts, resources. However, that we interpret them, we want the Father to say on the last day, we want to hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And we can't we can't end looking at this passage without drawing attention to the one who's telling the parable and I'll never forget Jared's reference to the Jesus point. It's the whole point. There's nothing that we're going to invest in that we didn't receive as a gift from the Lord Himself first. Nothing. There will be no one of whom it can be said he or she was completely faithful. There's no one whose labors in and of themselves will be sufficient to merit hearing, well done. Except one. And that one never got distracted from what his father called him to do. That one never squandered a year, never squandered a month, never squandered a day, never squandered a moment. Try and, try and guess how many moments we've squandered. There's one who never squandered one. Perfect obedience perfect righteousness perfect faithfulness we read about it in hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 therefore holy brothers you who share in a heavenly calling consider jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him Just as Moses also is faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Yes, Moses was faithful, but not completely faithful. Couldn't even enter the promised land. Not Jesus. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house, has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Our hope is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us, the great Redeemer. Christ in us the great Savior, the faithful Savior, the faithful one. Our elder brother, praise God. He is the faithful one who has provided all we need to make much of what God has given us, who has provided through his death on the cross, complete atonement for our sins and all our failings and all our squanderings and all our missed opportunities, all covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Everyone. He has been raised from the dead so that no opportunity need be squandered, so that no life need be unimportant, so that no opportunity we have need be neglected. Jesus Christ, the faithful one, who has provided forgiveness for our failings, strength for our persevering, and fruitfulness for our labors. And on the last day when the Father says, well done, we will hear through those words the Father's pure delight in His beloved Son who has made it all possible.